Before we begin tonight, I would like to share with you all that I used to suffer from soap addiction, but I'm all clean now. So I just wanted to let you know that. And I've been curious here lately, do people in Australia call the rest of the world up over? I just have thought about that. And um, so with that being said, somebody smiling and just shaking. Y'all should know this by now, right? So it's, it's coming to some level. <clears throat> As I mentioned uh, over the past couple of services, um, tonight we will embark on a, a what is going to be a long journey through the book of Revelation. Um, of late, several people have asked about it. And I've been feeling it on my heart. Um, But I want to make a few comments before we jump into our first study tonight. And I want to make it clear as to what my purpose is in this study. Uh, I'm going to simply call this study the hereafter. You'll understand that in a minute. But my purpose in this study is to show you, through the Word of God, the hereafter. What is coming Uh, what I believe will be after the rapture of the church as I understand it in the book of Revelation. I'm going to keep this study as simple as I can. I'm going to keep it as simple as I can. There will be several chapters that I will not cover, and I'll explain why when the time comes. There are several subjects that I will not get into in this particular study, such as the red heifer, the temple on the mount, the 144,000, etc., My purpose in going through this study is to show you what is going to happen on the earth during the tribulation period after the church is raptured. I want to make sure you understand that. I want to make sure you understand it so that you can make up your own mind as to whether you want to be here when it happens or go through or be there when it happens or go in the rapture. As I taught last Wednesday night, I believe the church... That is the church that Jesus redeemed at Calvary will not go through the tribulation period because uh, one of the reasons, as as I mentioned last Wednesday night, is there are at least 16 references to the church in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Whereas in chapter 6 through 18, which essentially cover the tribulation, do not mention the church one time. I respect the other points of view that I mentioned last Wednesday night, but I do not wish to debate or argue them with anybody. Uh, I believe some of our young people will be joining us uh, next Wednesday night. I would like to encourage our parents to bring your kids. You say, well, I don't want to because it will scare them. Um, I think if they miss the rapture, well, they're coming in now. So at least some of them. So that's awesome. Thank you all very much. But if they miss the rapture, I'd sure hate for it to be because of your negligence to tell them what's going to happen when it's over. You say, well, it'll scare them. I think we need to understand the value of the fear of God. Uh, We'll talk about that maybe a little bit Sunday. So I encourage you to bring your kids um, when I was in that 10, 12-year-old bracket, prophecy preachers were running rampant. It seemed like our church hosted at least one a year, sometimes two. I've dreamed a couple of times as a kid that a rapture took place and I was left. I would get out of the bed and kneel down at the side of the bed and pray my heart out and cry. 
I had a backslidden sibling that would get out of bed and come pray with me just so I would pray through the conviction and get back to bed so we could all go to sleep. I was terrified. It didn't hurt me. It didn't hurt me. And it won't hurt your kids either. You may have to talk to them when you get home, and they may cry at night. But they're going to know what awaits them if they're not right with God. And God help you if you prevent them from hearing it. Everybody said amen. So let's begin. The book of Revelation can be divided into three sections or three parts. Section number one is Revelation chapter one. John sees Jesus like he had not seen him before. He saw a miracle performing Jesus, a crucified Jesus, a resurrected Jesus, a Jesus with a glorified body, and an ascended into heaven Jesus. But now the Jesus he sees in Revelation chapter 1 is different. He sees him as God manifested in the flesh. Excuse me, he saw him as God manifested in the flesh. Now he sees him as God manifested in immortal flesh. He said, I fell at his feet as dead. So section one of Revelation is Revelation chapter one. Section two of the book of Revelation is Revelation two and three. And it tells the story of God speaking to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern day Turkey. Sister Murphy and I have been there. I want everybody to understand the seven churches of Asia Minor are seven literal cities in the country of Turkey that are still in existence under different names, of course. But the existence of the seven churches of Asia have been proven through archaeology, history, and so on. And before I move on to section three, which is where I'm headed, which begins in Revelation chapter four, I want everybody to understand something here tonight about prophecy. When you read and study the content of the book of Revelation, there are some things that's going to happen that may be a challenge for you to believe. I just don't see how that can happen, Pastor. Let me give this tonight as an example. I'd like to use Jesus as an example. The fact that Jesus was born and actually did live is not what I want to challenge you with tonight. What I want, what I want to answer is, was the Jesus of the Bible who he claimed he was? Was Jesus the Messiah? There are over 300 prophecies listed in the Bible that point directly to Jesus, the Messiah. I'm going to quickly give you an example of eight of those tonight. Number one is the time of his birth. You can see the Daniel 8 and 9 timeline. He was prophet, it was prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He would be born of a virgin, according to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, according to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. He would be mocked, according to Psalm 22, 7 and 8. He would be crucified, according to John three fourteen. He would be pierced with nails, according to Psalm twenty two sixteen. He would die with the wicked, but he would be buried with the rich according to Isaiah 53, 9. Keep in mind those eight prophecies that I just mentioned. Mathematics and astronomy professor Peter W. Stoner has made the statement that the chances of just eight 
prophecies, such as the one I've just mentioned, just eight prophecies like these coming true or coming to pass by sheer chance is one in 100,000 trillion. That is one, the number one, with 17 zeros behind it. 100,000 trillion. That would be the equivalent to covering the whole entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep and then expecting a blindfolded man to walk across the state and on the very first try find one coin that you marked. That's just eight coming to pass. Imagine the odds of all 300 plus coming to pass. The math on that is very challenging. So I want you to understand if God can do that with Jesus, that precise, and if he can do the 10 plagues in Egypt, if he can destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, all of that, it, was not, it will not be difficult for him to bring to pass what is prophesied in the book of Revelation. And I want everybody here tonight to know it is not going to be a picnic. So fasten your seat belts. Let's get started. <clears throat> the hereafter. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 through chapter 5 verse 14, this third major section of Revelation begins here. The things which shall be hereafter. Chapters 4 and 5 establish Christ's right and authority to act as judge of, of the earth. God on his throne invests the lion of the tribe of Judah with the authority to establish his dominion and kingdom on the earth because of his redeeming work as the lamb. So beginning with Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must be, which must be hereafter. So what do you think he is being talked about in this very first verse? I believe this is depicting the rapture. Most commentaries do. The door signifies entrance by way of salvation and revelation into heaven. The command, come up hither, I believe refers specifically to the rapture of the church. You'll notice the change in scenery for John, who is to receive revelation about future events. This begins the final section of the book of Revelation, describing the events that follow the church age. That is, from the day of Pentecost until the rapture, some 2,000 years. The phrases you read after this and things which must be hereafter move to the future, beyond the age of the church, beyond the era of the church. Chapters 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5 shows the move of the church from earth to heaven. The trumpet in this, in this scripture setting signifies an authoritative voice. I read this last Wednesday night. I'll read it again in 1 Corinthians 15. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The rapture will happen so quickly that you will not even have time to blink your eye. Again, from Revelation 4, 1, John said, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet, the trumpet sounding, talking with me, which said, Come up hither, the rapture. And then he said, I will show you things which must be hereafter. The I in Revelation 4, 1 is, of course, John, who is writing this. The reason I say that is because we've just heard Jesus speaking in the previous chapter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now we hear from John about the things he saw. This is after Jesus finishes his messages to the seven churches. This is after Jesus finishes with the churches that was redeemed at Calvary. He finishes his message with them. The church is raptured, and now John's focus is going to be placed on the things that are coming hereafter. I want to say tonight in passing that we will see the number seven uh, throughout the book of Revelation. Seven means spiritually complete. Perhaps in this number, God is saying, this is it. I've, I've got my redeemed church here with me. That part of what I wanted to do on the earth is over. This also leads me to believe that Revelation 4.1 is the rapture of the church. God is saying here that there's nothing else to read. And if you can't get the message in Revelation, you, can, you cannot get it from anywhere else. So the voice that John heard was like a trumpet. This is a powerful voice, and it gives a true and certain sound. The voice says, come up hither to John. In this specific sentence, he tells John, come up hither. Then he tells him why. Jesus, the voice, says... I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So now John is seeing into the future. He is seeing the conclusion of the church age. He has seen the rapture of the church. And after the believers in Christ are raptured into heaven, in this particular scene that he sees, God begins to unfold future events to him. I would like for all of us to give John some latitude because he is seeing things that he has never seen before and has no clue as to what some of the things that he sees are, such as modern technology, potentially aircraft, missiles, those kind of things. John's not seeing that, and he has a difficult time sometimes describing it, and we're going to help interpret some of that as we go along uh, in our study. And then in Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, The Bible said, John said, and immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he that sat on it to look upon was like a jasper and sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne there were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. 
and they had on their head crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. So you'll notice in verses 2 through 5 that we just read, John said he was in the spirit. And in the spirit he sees one God. Everybody say one God. He sees one God sitting on his throne in heaven. The gems and the rainbow shows the glory of God. The 24 elders, I believe, represents the raptured New Testament church in heaven. The Bible said they had on crowns. Their crowns, the Greek word is Stephanos. They are crowns of reward from the judgment seat of Christ. This is a victor's crown. It's a victor's crown, not a kingly crown or diadem such as God himself will wear. The white raiment shows their righteousness, which has now been judged and purified. The number 20 and 4 elders, the number 20 and 4, I believe represents the church as priest before God. David in the Old Testament divided the Levitical priesthood into 24 sections uh, so they could minister more proficiently and so on. Perhaps the 24 comes from this. The 24 elders enthroned in heaven around the throne of God is representative of earthly conditions. The word elder, I'll have you notice, when it refers to 24 elders, the, el- the word elder is nowhere ever applied to angels. So the 24 elders are not angels. They have to be someone else. Again, I believe it's the church. Their believers, these believers are seen here as a kingdom of priests. Old Testament saints are not yet included since they will not be resurrected and rewarded until after the tribulation period, according to Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The seven lamps that he talked about, or the seven spirits, again symbolize the Holy Spirit of God. The throne, I want you to notice tonight, is not so much a piece of furniture, but it's more of a symbol of God's absolute sovereign rule and authority. The throne or its sovereign rule and authority is the focus of chapter 4. It occurs 13 times, 11 times referring to God's throne. John was changed and transported instantly, the Bible said. The words and one set on the throne is indicative that the redemptive work of Calvary is complete. God is sitting on his throne. This segment of ministry and the establishment of the church and rapturing the church, that, that phase is completed and it's not applicable on the earth anymore. I personally believe tonight that the work of Calvary will conclude at the rapture and that our Acts 2.38 message as we know it tonight will not be applicable anymore during the tribulation period for those of you that think you can be saved after the rapture. A throne shows rulership and power. Notice that the throne was set in heaven. Set is past tense. The throne, this throne is occupied even now in heaven and has never been unoccupied. And then the Bible said in Revelation 4 and 3, He that sat on the throne to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. The jasper and sardine stone were the most precious of all stones. The beauty of God was so dazzling 
that John could not describe him. The jasper was the last and the sardine the first stone in the breastplate worn by the high priest in Exodus 28. These stones are also found in the foundation of the new Jerusalem. Now, when you talk about the jasper and the sardine, it's really talking about the diamond and the ruby is what's meant by these stones. These stones are known for their clearness and their brightness. The emerald is another precious stone, green in color. The color green means earthly or of the earth. The emerald was also a part of the breastplate of the high priest and the foundation of the new Jerusalem. The value of these three stones is greater than other stones, and they are classified as precious stones, which means they are very expensive. The rainbow is green, earthly, to show the covenant between God and man. The first rainbow mentioned was a sign of a promise from God to man. God would never again destroy the earth by water. The rainbow encircles the throne as a constant reminder to God and and man of all the covenants between God and man. This, no doubt, is an amazing, beautiful sight to behold. In Revelation 4.4, you'll notice we're going verse by verse tonight. The Bible said, Round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Four and twenty elders, their joint rule with Christ, their white garments, and their golden crowns all seem to indicate that these 24 elders represent the redeemed or the church, those that were bought by the blood of Calvary. So you may ask the question, can we be sure that this is who the redeemed are? There's only one group that will be complete and glorified at this point, and that is the church that began in the book of Acts. I know of no other people in the Bible that could be considered redeemed and complete and glorified at this point. So I believe the elders represent the church, which sings the song of redemption in chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. They are the overcomers who have their crowns and live in the place prepared for them where they have gone to be with Jesus, fulfilling John chapter 14. The 24 elders who represent the redeemed in heaven acknowledge that humans were created by God for His good pleasure. The response of praise recognizes the sovereignty of God. It can be controversial to some raised by this vision of the throne of God and about the identity of the 24 elders, but let me read Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they, the 24 elders, sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, And to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and thou hast redeemed us. To God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. I'm clear and certain tonight that these 24 elders is the church that has just been raptured. You'll notice he said, and has redeemed us, revealing their human nature. Once their human nature was confirmed, it became obvious that the rapture was pictured by Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 as occurring before the tribulation. Rapture for this scene, which is of the throne of God in heaven just before the seven-year tribulation as defined in chapter 6 through 19, pictures 24 people or elders in the presence of God with white robes 
and crowns on their heads. There are many significances tied to the number 12, but suffice it to say that God prescribed this number to have meaning and purpose of which were governmental authority and completeness or perfection and the authority given to mankind by God. So there are many other schools of thought on the number 24. We may talk about that at another time. But John here is considered the faithful witness. He observes these events immediately after the church age has been concluded and just prior to the beginning of the tribulation period. The Bible said in verse 5 of chapter 4, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which which are the seven spirits of God. The lightnings and thunderings represented here shows the majesty and the awesomeness of God. Lightning, earthquakes, and thundering throughout the Bible have been an outward proclamation of God. Even at the foot of Mount Sinai, the people were afraid of God because of just such manifestations. This is not the fury of nature, but the firestorm of, fire, of righteous fury about to come from an awesome, powerful God upon a horrible, sinful, wicked world. The seven lamps are symbolic, a symbolic number covering all the workings of the Spirit of God. The seven spirits of God refer to the seven eyes of God or characteristics of God. The seven spirits mean the entirety of the power of the Spirit is manifest at the throne and emanates out uh, to the 24 elders or the church. The fire mentioned here throughout the Bible as well has been symbolic of God Himself as in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. In Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, we are told to serve God with reverence and godly fear because God is a consuming fire. We do not always completely understand God, but it's times like these that we must accept what He says and trust in Him with all of our heart. The Spirit of God which is burning is to illuminate the minds and spirits of all who accept it. In Revelation chapter 4, 6 through 8, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. The four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. In verses 4 through 6 that we just read, the term for beast, the word beast, is not a good translation, the English sometimes doesn't serve the Greek very well. It's not a good translation. Uh, You could say four beasts, you could say living creatures, but the literal interpretation is living ones. They are living ones, implying that they are eternal ones, and they're probably winged angelic beings, similar to what you would read about in Ezekiel 10, 15 through 22. They are guards of the throne of God, if you will. The eyes symbolize wisdom, the wings depict movements. They represent four characteristics of God. They worship God 
as did the seraphim in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. I want to stop just for a second here. You see that I'm going quickly. If I expounded and just drug this out and did this like I preach on Sunday, we'd be here two in the morning. Where I'd like for you to feel some comfort is if I'm going quickly, it's going to be on our website and whatnot. So you can feel free to, you can go back and you can get your Bible. You can study, you can take notes, you can pause it. You're not going to hit my pause button tonight, but you can hit it on the computer. Does that make sense to everybody? So don't get frustrated if I'm going fast and you can't write that fast. When you get home and when you have time, you can go through it uh, at your own pace. <clears throat> so again, though they, these living creatures worship God as did the seraphim in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. The lion represents strength. The calf represents service. The face of a man represents intelligence. And the eagle represents swiftness. These represent characteristics of God is what they symbolize. Revelation 4, verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The sea of glass. Revelation 21 and 1 says there is no sea in heaven. So the crystal surface that serves as the floor of God's throne stretches out like a great glistening sea. Again, John is doing his best to explain what he is seeing. All around the throne were four beasts or living ones. Um, The number four shows the universality of these beasts or living beings. The number four in the Bible represents the earth, the four corners of the earth. So they show that... God is universal in his characteristics with man. In Isaiah 6, 2 through 13, and Ezekiel 1, 5 through 28, these living beings are also called seraphim and cherubim. These living beings surrounded the throne are full of eyes, which means their wisdom was overwhelming. Full of eyes, although not omniscient, an attribute reserved for God alone, these angels have a comprehensive knowledge and perception and nothing escapes their scrutiny. The eyes denote wisdom or intelligence. These beings looking before and behind means they look back into times past and also look forward into things to come, meaning that they are eternal beings. Verse 7, the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had a face as a man, the fourth beast as a flying eagle. First, like a lion, in what is obviously intended as symbolic language, God, or John compares these four beings with four of God's earthly creations. Ezekiel indicated that every cherub has these four attributes. The likeness to a lion symbolizes strength and power. The second, like a calf, the image of a calf demonstrates that these things render humble service to God. The third, face like that of a man, Their likeness to man shows that they are rational beings. The fourth, like a flying eagle, the cherubim fulfills their service to God with the swiftness of eagle's wings. I'll have you look at an artist's rendering of one of these. Who knows what they really look like, but I wanted to emphasize the wings. The Bible said, And the four beasts had each of them six wings, 
about him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The Bible said they're full of eyes. They say, Holy, holy, holy. This is the cry of these heavenly creatures who know God as he really is. That's all they can say. The six wings that I'm pointing out to you tonight, also spoken of in Isaiah 6, seem to show, number one, humility, two wings for humility, two wings that represent obedience, and two wings that represent reverence to God. It seems here that one of their tasks, if not all of their tasks, was just to simply proclaim the holiness of God, which was and is and is to come. God's eternal presence is not limited by time. He has always been present and will come in the future. In verses 9 through 11, are y'all with me tonight? Is we're going okay? Uh, verses 9 through 11, the Bible said that all of heaven, everybody say all of heaven. All of heaven worship God. The angels extol his character. The angels extol his character. And the elders or the church extol his creative powers. God has the right to rule and has the sovereign authority to judge the earth because he is both holy and creator of all. I've sought tonight without stopping and explaining a lot, but I want to make sure you understand that God is sovereign He is depicted as sovereign. He has all authority. He can rule as he pleases. I'm saying that because when we get into the tribulation period, we're still in heaven tonight. You haven't realized that yet, but we're all in heaven, have been there for a little while. But people are going to get real upset and angry with God. And they're going to question, how do you have the right to do this? Number one, he's God and he's sovereign. Number two, he has the authority to do it. But what really, and we'll show this in in a little bit, maybe next Wednesday, that because of his death on Calvary, that's given him the authority because he gave the world a chance. Everybody say amen. So in Revelation chapter 4, verse 9, And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. The song of the living beings is giving praises. Not just then, not just now, but continually. It never stops. It's continuous. We see by this honor given that it should be all glory and all honor. You don't withhold any for yourself. They're saying holy, holy, holy. They're giving, they're worshiping him with giving him all honor and all glory. They're giving him everything that he's worthy of. The eternity of God is so difficult for us to understand because our minds are programmed to a life of just under 100 years here on earth, we have a hard time imagining imagining eternity, how long it's going to be. 
But we also have a difficult time trying to imagine how complete it's going to be, how fulfilling. There'll be no hunger, there'll be no depression, there'll be no sadness, there'll be no gloominess. This is an amazing environment that's sinless, that has no sorrow, no pain, no suffering, and this will last forever. So tonight, as we put out the land and gear for this presentation, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, And the four and twenty elders fell down, fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, We'll come tell you what they said in just a minute. But at the presence of God, it is a normal thing to fall prostrate at his feet. It's normal to do that. I've seen people intermittently all of my life do that. I've done that. You're overwhelmed by the presence of God and you just feel it's awkward to stand. The four and twenty elders fall down before him shows their great humility at the presence of God, a deep respect and honor that should be given to God. To him, the Bible said, that sat on the throne. The word worship, the word worship has been misunderstood by so many. We sing about it in our songs and use it in our prayers. But do we truly know how to worship? Our churches call Sunday services worship. But oftentimes very true or very little true worship goes on. The word that was translated worship here means absolute reverence to God to adore him. Absolute reverence to God to adore Him. One of the meanings of the word means to kiss. It's referenced as a dog licking the hand of his master. Absolute humility and adoration of God is what it really means. Do we go to church to humbly worship and adore our God? A deep respect and honor should be given to God. The Bible said they cast their crowns aware that God alone is responsible for the rewards they have received. They did nothing in and of themselves to earn that throne. It was given to them by the mercy and grace of God. And not only do they not feel worthy to wear it in His presence they also feel like the only appropriate thing to do is to take it off of their head, bow their face to the floor, and cast their throne or their crown at the feet of their God, of their king. These crowns are victorious crowns that Jesus has placed on their head. They nor we have done nothing to earn these crowns. These crowns belong to Jesus, not us. He won the victory. He placed them on their head. Everyone benefits from the victory, but Jesus is the one who won it. This is another act of humility on their part. When they throw the crowns at Jesus' feet, they are telling him that they are his because he won them. He won for them. Verse 11, they said, their worship was this. Thou art worthy, O Lord, 
to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. He is the creator God who set out to redeem his creation. And we see here the worthiness of God and why he should be praised. It is in our society the popular thing to do is to worship the created rather than the creator. We are warned about this over and over through the Bible. Not only in terms of getting our priorities mixed up and thinking too much of money, family, homes, automobiles, recreation, and so on. That can so easily become a God to us. But nothing should mean more to us than him. The Bible said he is a jealous God. He will not allow the believer to mess around with false gods. How could we compare the creator of it all to his creations? We must recognize God to be the supreme to all others in every way. Before the world existed, he spoke and it became. The power of his word created everything that we know today. So I believe it's good for us to understand tonight in conclusion why he did not just leave well enough alone and live as he was and not bother with all this. We have been such a problem and heartache to him. All of us have on many occasions. The earth and all that's on it was created for his pleasure. He created us so that he could fellowship with us. And we are to, we are to Jesus like our children are to us and, and even more. They're great joy, but at the very same time, they can bring us must hurt our children can. But the joy of it far outweighs the hurt, and perhaps that is the way it is with God dealing with us. The joy outweighs the sorrow, and we see here that the whole entire universe was created by God for God. And just this short study tonight, Sister Murphy can tell you what it's been like at my house. I've been up here at the church office. I come out every once in a while and share with her things that I've studied and prepared for. And it's got to the point in doing this study that I'm just kind of overlooking all the stuff that's going on in our world right now. I just look over the head of all of it to that glorious moment in the twinkling of an eye when the trumpet sounds. And we'll all be raptured out of here. I can't wait for that moment. But God help you. If you don't make it. So as an introduction to the book of Revelation tonight, I conclude. But for this first presentation tonight, I feel like our response to God and our response to the word of God should be adequate and sufficient. So tonight, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And by way of conclusion, by way of dismissal prayer, if you will. We just heard about what it's going to be like in heaven. It might not hurt to practice that a little bit here tonight. Why don't right where you stand, if you feel comfortable to, why don't you lift up your hands and let's worship the Lord for a few moments. God, you're truly amazing. Oh, God, you're truly amazing. You're truly amazing. You're truly amazing. You're truly powerful. You're truly great. You are sovereign God and we struggle so hard 
in our human minds to receive this, to understand it, to comprehend it. But I pray tonight that the Word of God has been fired and shot like an arrow, that it's going to hit every heart, every mind. That, God, you're not playing games. This isn't a joke. And the God of grace and mercy is going to turn to a God of wrath. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And, God, we have to be ready. God, we have to be ready. So tonight we worship you, we reverence you, we respect you tonight, we honor you because you've given us a chance, you've given us an opportunity, you've given us the privilege, we've given us a privilege of taking advantage of your shed blood at Calvary and I thank you tonight, God I thank you for that, God I thank you for that and I pray tonight that you would guide our thoughts and minds, that you would guide our hearts. And keep us close to you, God. Keep us close to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thank the Lord. Would you clap your hands to the Lord tonight? Hallelujah. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Praise God. Now, in my heart of hearts tonight, I know that probably most of you came expecting to hear about the four horsemen and the Antichrist. But you have to weave your way carefully through the book of Revelation, and you just don't want to jump into something, right? So we're going to put some foundation and a little bit of basis uh, tonight. Next Wednesday night, Lord willing, we'll open up with some things, but then we'll get into, we'll get into those things that um, God wants us to be in. Thank the Lord. God bless you tonight. Consider yourself dismissed, and we'll look forward to seeing you. Sunday morning. Thank the Lord. God bless you.